welcome to the Accelerate Podcasts, a podcast for high-performing current and aspiring female founders and CEOs across Africa. And for those who also have a passion for Africa, this is the place to learn about the critical success factors and best practices of some of the most amazing high-performing female founders and CEOs as we help you grow to be the best version of you, achieve time and financial freedom whilst living a significant life. Thanks for tuning in to listen. I'm your host, Nekamubi. Let's dive in. to another episode of the Accelerate Podcast, and I am super excited to have Peju Adebajo with me. Peju is a seasoned C-level executive who has led significant PLs, close to over half a billion in 2015, and is an experienced non-executive, half a billion dollars, I didn't give the currency, in 2015, and it's important to do that, and is an experienced non-executive director, board advisor, and chair. She's led in different ownership and governance structures, including publicly listed private equity, individual and family-owned businesses, and has extensive international experience in Africa, in Europe, in the US, and the UK. She has worked across multiple sectors, including manufacturing and distribution, agriculture, financial services, and consulting. Peju is the immediate past Ogun State Commissioner for Agriculture. And prior to this appointment, she's acquired over 25 years experience in various sectors, as I earlier mentioned. Her previous roles include the Managing Director of Lafarge Africa, the Managing Director of WAPCO Nigeria, the Managing Director CEO of MUCA, the Managing Director CEO of UTC Nigeria. She's a recipient of the 2015 CNBC Africa Businesswoman of the Year Award and the 2013 Harvard Business School Nigeria Leadership Award. Peju holds a Bachelor and Master's of Engineering, Chemical Engineering from the Imperial College of Science and Technology London and an MBA from Harvard University. She's an alumni of INSEAD. Pedro, warm welcome. I'm super, super excited because we're going to talk about all things um, from public service to private sector to corporate governance and all that. Warm welcome. Thank you so much, Neka. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for inviting me. And, and let me just say that I've listened to some of the previous podcasts. You're doing an amazing job. I don't know how you do it and combine everything else. So you can give me some of your secrets. Thank you. Thank you. I guess what drives me is that we need to showcase or tell um, not just Africans, right? Just highlight Pan-African women who are doing amazing things, right? So it, for me, it's, it's a joy, right? To spend this next few minutes with you. And it's important that I set the time because we can go on and on. And I know you have several things to get on after this. Okay, so my first question is, as an experienced managing director, CEO, in several large organizations, how intentional have you been about navigating your career path and options? Nick, I wish I could tell you I was intentional. Someone said that strategy is best defined 
looking backwards, retrospective. Having said that, as a child, I had an inkling that I was going into the public sector. I remember five, six years old thinking I want to be the president of Nigeria. Um, but I didn't follow that route at all. I went into the private sector. And as you said earlier on, my career has coursed from engineering to manufacturing, um, to cement, uh, to finance, to consulting, renewable energy. And I had a stint in the public sector. So I haven't at all been intentional, even though as we will come to it later on, but there have been themes in my career. And all I can say is that those people who know from the day that they're born, what they're born to do are blessed indeed. Um, my daughter from age, again, age five or six knew she wanted to be a writer. She read avidly, um, she wrote avidly, consumed everything. Uh, went to Cambridge, got her first class in English and is now on her way to being a writer. She knew this from age five or six. I haven't been so, been so blessed, but the point I'm trying to get across is that there are different career trajectories Everything I've done has been for a purpose. And I do believe that that purpose um, will unfold itself. Mm. But there have been common themes through my right. career. That's interesting. So really, I guess there are different parts to that. You could know what you want from the very beginning, or maybe not necessarily, but I guess maybe your education and all that could have then attracted you to different careers that you had. Would that be yes. fair to say? One of my favorite things, I think it's by Jim Rohn. He talks about the headlamp theory. So you're going from Lagos to Ibadan. You don't know the way to Ibadan and you're driving in the dark. Now, the headlamps are going to get you to Ibadan. You may not see everything along the way. You may not know what happens five kilometers down the road. But as long as you can see one kilometer down the road, you'll navigate to Ibadan. So I'm going somewhere. And I'm applying the headlamp theory. So I know as far as the next position, but I know that along the way, I'm gaining what I call transferable skills, um, which actually stand me in better and better and better stead as I ascend the ladder. So for example, throughout my career, without me planning it, my transferable skills have been about turnaround and transformation. Um, I started life as a consultant, which I worked for BCG in the UK. I didn't mention that in my bio. And there I got the rudiments of consulting. But I was attracted to implementing strategy as opposed to advising about strategy. And so in all of my roles, whether they have been in banking, whether they have been in manufacturing, um, in cement, I've been in roles where I've been doing transformation and turnaround. I've learned about people and managing teams and getting alignment from the shareholders. And the shareholders could be a multinational, it could be um, a private equity company, um, it could be a family business, but how do you get alignment between those shareholders and their objectives and the workforce or team that you need to lead and direct along the way? So I've learned about strategy and execution. I've learned about team building and alignment. Um, I've gained excellent communication skills. And of course, I've built a network of people. So I don't have to be an expert in a particular discipline. If I need experts or I need advice, I know where to go and I know who to call on. Right. No, that's why I was going to just bring up again that you've highlighted something really very important of 
really growing your transferable skills. And that's why you've been successful in working in multiple industries. You have excellent experience on both sides of the table, right? So from executive management to non-executive management. Tell us what's been the experience because you can see views from, from one side, from management as well as um, providing oversight um, and corporate governance. I think most people know about management, so I'll probably dwell more on being a non-executive director. But essentially, I mean, in management, as we know, we're doing, um, we're instructing, um, we're acting, we're directing, we're writing the thick of things and the fray of things, and it's it's very exciting, a lot of adrenaline and, and a lot of excitement. It's equally exciting as a director, except that you take on a, a slightly different role. And it's the role of what we call constructive challenge or a critical friend. So it's that, um, it's that balance between, and we also talk about um, being nose in, but fingers out. So you need to be able to have a very finely attuned sense for what's going on um, inside the company, even though you're not an executive at board meetings, which is where the arena in which it all happens, the role of the board member is to provide constructive challenge to management. However, if management happens to be going through a difficult patch, then you become the critical friend. And your role absolutely is to ensure that you're providing all the support that's required to management. Now, the fact that I've been a CEO under so many different shareholder types means that um, very often I also provide Um, I'm also the role of a trusted advisor to the CEO and the management team. So I've worked with private equity who usually are very exacting and demanding and need to make their returns within a specific period of time. And that puts a particular type of pressure uh, to multinationals where um, what happens in Nigeria will cause reverberations in the USA, in Europe, wherever headquarters is. And you need to be very attuned to the role of a significant parent who is a multinational. To family businesses, I grew up myself in a family business, and I know you come from a family business, so you understand what I'm saying. Businesses bring about another different type of pressure, in a way, especially when you're going from a transition from the original founding family um, to professional management. So also, and even in the public sector, the public sector is also a different type of organization where your shareholder is actually the people you know, we the, we the people, shareholders in all public sector institutions, even though the people are the shareholders, how much voice is actually given to the shareholder? And, and you have in the public sector as well, you have the multiplicity of what you call stakeholder management, which of course has become very, very topical now. So now we're talking about ESG and environmental, social, and governance. That stakeholder management is very pronounced in the public sector is beginning to become manifest in the private sector. As a board director, my role is to synthesize all of this experience I've had in so many different industries, so many different teams. Some companies are failing, some companies are thriving, some companies are going through mergers and acquisitions. Whenever I get to a board, I bring in all these different experiences. And usually when you come across a situation, it rings a bell and you say, aha, in this other company, we came across a situation. This is how we handle it. You don't tell, uh, you advise. And of course, being a board director, one of the most critical skills is listening. You have to be a very, very good listener and hear what is not said. 
Because what is not said is usually the most important item on the agenda. So important, what's not said. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to then say, what would then be one major skill beyond the experience? Because I get to speak to people who are aspiring to become um, non-executive directors. Beyond the experience as a CEO, um, would that be then the listening skills or is there something else? Well, I, I think there's so many skills that are required as a director, but listening skills are universally important. If you really want to lead and motivate teams, and especially in this period of uncertainty, when the world is changing at, you know, millions of miles per hour, and the CEO is in a critical position because the success of the CEO relies on their own judgment calls about the future. So one of the best things one can do as a board member and in the C-suite at the moment is to have very, very good listening skills. It's also about reaching out and networking and understanding what, because we're so interconnected in the world now, you need to understand what's going on in other industries apart from your own, because sooner or later, those industries will collide. Um, So I would say probably the two most important skills I think one brings as apart from, of course, the um, hard skills. So often the board director may be brought in because there's a particular gap in finance and they need someone to manage the audit committee, or there's a gap in strategy execution and they need someone to manage to help oversee operations. But two, I would say non-technical skills that are critical are number one, listening. And second, just being aware of what's going on outside, aware of trends in other industries, aware of what's going on in technology, aware of what's going on with climate change, and really on looking to the future and trying to predict and understand how that's going to impact your today. Mm, very insightful. Okay, so let's um, let's kind of change gears now, uh, given that you've been in private sector and now um, public sector. Um, how were you, what was, I mean, you were the previous Commission of Agriculture, and that must have been a totally different experience. What was a high and a low experience as a high-performing Commission of Agriculture? I love the public sector, like I said. I've actually been over 31 years a postgraduate, and my public sector experience was about two years. And your video is turned off. For the public sector, I've been over 31 years postgrad, of which about two two years were in the public sector, but that those were extremely impactful years. And I think it, it's compressed maybe a decade of experience in a very short period of time. The public sector is, is interesting. Multiple stakeholders, uh, you have community, you have the civil servants, you have political appointees, uh, you have civil liberty organizations, you have regulators. Um, of course, you have the, you know, whoever your principal is, whether it's the governor or the president or, you know, the Senate leader, or, depending on which, which sphere you're in. So in public sector, that whole stakeholder management is much, much, much more pronounced. It's not as clean as a private sector. Where you, at least in the past, in the private sector, the primary motive was shareholder um, management and meeting the needs, the needs of the shareholder. It's changing now because we're much more abreast in the private sector about being you know, a good business within a community in which we operate. But in the public sector, you know, the profit motive is much less pronounced. And if anything, issues like security and welfare of the people 
are meant to be our two most important objectives, at least according to our Nigerian constitution. And so settling into the public sector, when I came from a very sort of unilateral private sector profit-oriented um, objective, it, it was a bit, it was quite an adjustment for me. But I brought along certain principles. One is that I treat others as I, as I would like to be treated. Secondly, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Thirdly, I work with people's strengths and not their weaknesses. So in the public sector, you, you have these sorts of traditional divides between, say, the politicians and the civil servants. There are a lot of things which are taken about the norms, that this is how we behave in government. But I found that in my ministry, which unfortunately at the time agriculture has, was neglected, I was the Commission for Agriculture. Agriculture was neglected in, in the Southwest in particular, in Nigeria. And you can understand because State, the state I served in is so close to Lagos. Um, that trade and industry, a more natural thing for State benefiting from the overflow of Lagos than agriculture, even though agriculture was a heritage of the Southwest. So to that extent, the ministry and everything you know, had been a little bit neglected. And so I was working with what you would call perhaps a team that needed some motivation and a bit of goal setting, focus and orientation. And we set about doing that. In my particular ministry, inherited, normally you have a few, maybe one or two political appointees working alongside the civil servants. In my case, I had you know, almost two dozen of them by ministry alongside the civil servants. I remember I said that they were they typically may not always see eye to eye. But I'm very happy to say that we worked it through. Jim Collins says first get the right people on the bus. And so the thing was that getting this team of different individuals, different motives, objectives, all aligned um, towards saying, you know, we have this agricultural ministry. How are we going to ensure that agriculture takes a strategic position um, within this administration? Um, and that we really showcase that the Southwest is capable and able to have very high productivity yields and results in, in the value chains in which we're operating. Now, I'm, so I'm happy to say that uh, even though I left uh, now two years ago, that team is still united. Uh, the team of still civil servants and, and, and what you often find in, in Nigeria is that there's little continuity. Agric the agricultural area has been the area in open city where there's been the most continuity. The successive government has carried out a lot of the policies and programs that we came up with. Very good working relationship I, I have with the current commissioner and all those civil servants and the, the political appointees. We're, we're a big happy family mm -hmm. um, and we're corresponding regularly. And that's going to be another support group going forward to my next. So, um, it, it was extremely instructive. And I found that going back into the private sector, having been in the public sector, I think I became an even better CEO. Because by then I had, I had really learned the importance of stakeholder management, of relationship management, of power and influence, and just understanding that in many cases you have the formal structure, the formal organization, but there might be an informal organization which is much more powerful and more relevant. And you have to really have extremely high emotional and political intelligence. Okay, so go on. I wanted to say something, but go on, please. No, I, I was going to say, I emerged from that experience, you know, you know, another MBA, if you like. Okay, <laughs> informal MBA. MBA, a master's MBA, sorry, yes, okay, yeah. <laughs> Which I think has 
it's been absolutely fantastic for my transition back into the private sector. Right. No, sorry, did you say you are doing an MPA right now? No. Having been in the public sector, right. everything that I did not know. And so I've now enrolled for something called the School of Policy and Public Policy and Governance, and we're the pioneer cohort. And it's now teaching us about what it takes to be a good leader in the public sector. So we're learning everything from the history of Nigeria to the constitution, fiscal policy, monetary policy, exchange rate management, gender issues, issues about pers- persons living with disability. Um, it's, it's very, very comprehensive. And so it's helping me fill out some of the gaps I realized. Yeah, I have. Like, right, right. But I must, I, must, I must say, I mean, you literally, I guess you and your team, but you led the team transformed agriculture in the in the southwest it became um a one to go to a go to right attracting foreign investors you were in the papers of one project or the other and um yeah you you, you wanted to get into agriculture with uh, the transformation that was taking taking place there so that's um a a, a a role model i would say for those interested in that so really kudos kudos to you and for the, and it was just two years that you spent there, and just the effects that you 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 had there. Um, okay, so that's the good part. But what was a, a challenge? What was like really? You know what? This is hard. It was very hard. It was very hard. Um, like I said, the managing that whole complexity of relationships, you very often don't understand where people are coming from, because if you don't understand. Their, their own objectives and focus, what is important to them, you know, you may be backing up the wrong tree. So just understanding and trying to deal with that complexity of stakeholder management was important. The other thing, of course, is many of those ministries are under-resourced. So I'm talking about basic things like petrol for the car, you know, which needs to go out on visits to the community to inspect projects, to understand what's going on, to liaise with communities. Sometimes we have problems funding, even the most basic things, paper, petrol. Um, so you, you learn to work with very, very, very limited resources, which is why I, I continue to give credit uh, to the civil service. And also realize that many of them may not have had, they may not have had investment in them in terms of training, computer literacy, career management, the things we take for granted in the private sector. So just working with that team, and of course, you know, they say soldier comes, soldier go. They've also seen many, many public, public administrations come and go. So why would they, we used to joke that they were our landlords, we were the tenants. So why would they necessarily pay attention to one commissioner who they know is only going to be here for four years? They just have to outwit you and continue. And then you go. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was a bit difficult. But, but the beauty of it is that, you know, you, you sit back, you listen. You understand where individuals are. If you don't hook somebody emotionally, if you if you can't hook an individual emotionally, don't expect them to perform in your team. So you, you, I needed to understand where everybody was coming from. And, and I, I, like I say, I'm very proud that we built a team and we did many good things together. And I say much credit, all credit to the civil servants and the political appointees that we, we worked with. You know, interesting you pointed this out in terms of the awareness of the civil servants uh, under-resourced. And so given what they have, given what they're having to work with, um, they actually do, you know, and they do quite a bit. I, I couldn't yeah. agree. I, couldn't I think 
He gives civil servants a bad report. If you remember, I'm sure in, the, in your father's days, he was be a civil servant was to be a commissioner, um, to be a director in the ministry. It was highly, highly, highly regarded. Um, they had the resources. It was very well respected. The best and brightest people went into the civil sector. Not necessarily anymore. And you look at it, the pay is appalling in most cases. Career prospects in terms of promotion are not certain. And so that in itself sometimes encourages dysfunctional behaviors. And I think we need to be able to unravel all of that. And, and these are some of the issues that I'm able to dig deeper into um, in this um, School of Policy and Public Policy and Governance, which I'm currently doing um, uh, part-time. Okay, so given all that, well, that leads to my next question, that um, you have a master, uh, well, bachelor's and a master's in engineering, you have an MBA, you are now going through some, um, some training again. I guess you really develop yourself working on that. What's your, um, do you, how do you plan for that? How do you develop that knowing this is the next thing I need to experience, I need to get or, or training? How do you think through that and act on it? Yeah, I mean, on on that, I think I, I have to, I probably should get you to speak about it, but um, um, I'm learning, I'm learning. I, I wasn't very intentional in most issues um, early in my career. I wish I had started earlier. The pandemic has been fantastic for exposing the wealth of resources available at, at the click of your computer button. And so I'm really, really, really enjoying both formal and informal um, learning. Probably more with informal learning. I now attend a host of webinars. Um, I, I make a deliberate effort to understand what's going on in, in new industries. So, for example, there's so much going on now in fintech. Um, I'm, and my last role was in the renewable energy industry with climate change, uh, energy transition, transition to net zero. There's so much that we as um, African countries need to know about. Um, and um, so I'm really enjoying all of that informal learning. So I would say that I, I still need to struggle to create time to take on some formal education. But I think it's very doable. Um, I didn't think I could commit to the school that I'm doing at the moment, which is three hours every evening. Um, and this is going on for about eight or nine months, every single evening, including Saturday evening. Oh, wow. It's six hours on Saturday. It's now three. Um, so it is very doable. And I would encourage um, anybody who's listening to really think about the skills that are required for the next stage and ensure that um, one is building up those skills. So in my next phase, I'm, I'm going to be going more into non-executive roles, um, and so I'm, I'm deliberately going out to understand the governance environment in different jurisdictions, not, not just Nigeria. What's the governance environment in the US, in the UK, in South Africa, in Kenya, in Nigeria, um, and just understand what it takes to be a leader or, a di- or be directing companies in those jurisdictions. So I'm identifying my, my skills gaps um, and deliberately going out to fill those skills gaps. It could be through formal education, it could be by you finding a mentor practitioner in that area and saying, you give me an hour of your time, which sometimes is what is practical. Give me an hour of your time and educate me. Tell me what I need to know. At this stage in my life now, I'm now not expected to be an expert. So that's the you of being where I am. I don't have to but <laughs> well, you walk through the ranks and really, and yeah, so it's at this level now. But then you see, even though, you know, you are at the top and you perceive definitely, and you feel, yes, you are at the top, 
but you still keep aiming higher. You've identified, I mean, someone maybe who is still at the bottom and walking their way would think, well, what does Pedro need to know again? I mean, she's been CEO for four or five companies. She's been a very high performing commissioner, you know, but what you just said now is that you identify your gaps, which is why you're in this school of public policy. And then something instructive as well was the fact of, I guess, looking at the being um, futuristic, thinking about the future and where things are going, developing and learning about that. We've talked about climate change, uh, different countries, what different countries are doing. So even for a high performing female leader, one needs to be aware of that. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. I really need to be thinking about that, right? Because, you know, you're also consumed with the present, but then you're also kind of looking at the future and preparing yourself for that. Can you kind of add some more things around that? Well, I think one thing we know for sure, I mean, we all know that the world has become much smaller. If we thought the world was small before, it has become much, much, much smaller through the pandemic. And I think even, even when we fully go back to work, we will still have an element of online and the virtual world will be as important as the physical world. So that's one. The second is that the future is racing towards us faster than we can imagine. You know, with technology, especially with technology, things are going to be happening at a much faster pace. And so it's extremely important that we look at the issues ahead. So for example, in Africa, the growth of our population, um, the decline in in, um, natural resources like oil and the lack of funding for oil. What does that mean for our country? What does it mean that Nigeria is going to be like the third most populated country by 2050? What does it mean that Lagos is growing at the pace as which is growing? What does it mean when we say our oil resources are dwindling? How do we diversify the economy? Um, How do we scale? We don't need to scale with, just as with the GSM revolution, we don't need to scale finance, for example, and, and financial inclusion the way it did before, what's the role of fintech? Um, what's the role, what, what, what does it mean when um, the International Energy Organization or funders say they're no longer funding fossil fuel-based industries? So how does all of this impact us? How does artificial intelligence impact us? Um, we need to really understand uh, these issues. Um, climate change is an obvious one. Everywhere you go, you begin to see the real effects of climate change. And some of these things, you, you may not even have to go to school for them because there's, so, there's such a multiplicity. But the beauty is that these days, there's, there's so much resources, for example, on LinkedIn, um, webinars, you can attend. Uh, we need to network beyond our immediate comfort zone. Um, in the future, people are going to be living in Nigeria and working in India or living in Nigeria, working in Singapore. Technology makes it's full of... Actually, it's actually, yeah, it's really increased. You're, you're right, yes. So how do, how do we scale our workforce um, to our young our young generation? How do we scale them in such a way that they have global skills, which means that they have recognizable credentials, which enable them to apply for a job in California, in Silicon Valley, and they get it. So these are all issues that, you know, as leaders, we need to, to think about, to anticipate, and ensure that we begin to put those policies in place to ensure that, because... You know, if our population is growing at this rate and we don't provide the resources and the opportunities for that population, we're all in trouble. Big trouble, big trouble. So <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot to do. And I think one thing I've also realized is that there's no point in saying, you know, there's no they, you know, there's no point in sitting back and saying they or them. 
didn't do it. We are the ones. We are the ones, absolutely. And if nobody, do, if nobody's going to do it for us, right? So we need to take charge and do what we can do. Um, I could go on and on, um, but I really need to bring this to an end. I have so many other questions and you kind of touched a bit about that. And so your final comments to a senior manager um, who is aspiring to be an MDC of a large corporate organization, or even want to go into public service, what, what should that person be thinking about? And it may not even be a senior manager. So it may be whatever you're thinking about, who do you want to speak to directly um, as we begin to wrap up? But one of my mantras is create your own future. Okay, so I don't, I, you know, much as I said that the civil servants may not have had much career guidance, but you also don't wait for the HR department or for your boss to help you determine your own future. You need to have a sense of, you know, where you think you are. And many of, some of us don't know, but over time, begin to identify the sorts of things that you like doing. Where, so where are your skills? What are your areas of interest? And begin to navigate, as I did, begin to navigate in that direction. Think about the skills, the formal and informal skills that you need to acquire to get to where you need to go. Think about the people that you need to meet. And, and, we, and we need to be intentional. I've learned this intentionality. It's about sitting down and writing down, literally write down. Don't just think it. We need to have these things written down, documented. Hold yourself accountable. If you can't hold yourself accountable, get an accountability partner. So you need to create your own future. Um, there's nobody with that responsibility but yourself. Um, and then my mantra, I believe very much in relationship building and networks. Um, many of the opportunities that will come to you will come to you through your networks. So treat others as you'd like to be treated. You know, be that person who worked, who did put in the extra hours, worked the extra mile. Was that bit much more decent? Was that bit more, bit much more considerate? Um, was that bit much more insightful? And so that when you leave your current role or project, you're remembered. And when an opportunity comes up, somebody can say, ah, yes, I work with so-so-and-so. I know they can do a good job. Um, and then the third thing is go for it. Don't, do it. don't, don't, don't overthink it. Um, this is where women sometimes suffer from um, imposter syndrome. You look at all the reasons. All the knows. <laughs> do it <laughs> yeah. just go for it just dive in right <laughs> yeah yeah do it afraid I, I spoke recently about that do it afraid and you, you'll be fine I'm sure you're still afraid in some things you do even at your level Absolutely. Exactly. so <laughs> with butterflies in your stomach but you're still doing it and you're smiling and you know <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah. No, this has been really insightful. Pedro, thank you. Thank you so much for um, spending some time with me, sharing from your wealth of wisdom. I'm sure many others who are going to listen from around the world will be really inspired by, um, by these things you've shared um, with us today. Thank you. Neka, it's always a pleasure and so great to connect and um, enjoy your, your weekend. Thank you very much. This concludes this episode of Accelerate. All the information links will be down in the show notes. If you have not done so already, hit that subscribe button on your podcast player of choice on Apple. This will make sure you don't miss any of the amazing content we have lined up and rolling out for you. If you love this episode, it will mean a lot if you would leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. Finally, 
If you haven't connected with me over on Instagram and you're interested in learning more about similar episodes and all that's happening before they even get announced publicly, let's make sure to connect over there at Accelerate or Nekamubi on Instagram. But with all that said, I appreciate you being here. I look forward to connecting with you over on Instagram. And until I see you in the next episode, endeavor to grow, profit, and make an impact. 